1: up on today's show, if nothing else, this papal visit is expensive and it is a huge production. We'll speak with one of the people closely involved in the planning. Inflation reaching highs we haven't seen in 40 years. How many times have you heard that? And researchers say extreme heat can make mental health problems even more severe. Marion Haggerty-France, the Alberta Site Coordinator for the Archdiocese of Edmonton, has time to join us this morning because uh, this is a big deal. Marion, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us.
2: Thank you for having me. Happy to be here.
1: Of course, we're talking about the papal visit uh, that kicks off this Sunday, which is just a massive operation. But give us some idea of, of how big of an operation this is. For example, how many different agencies and groups have you been coordinating with and putting this all together?
2: I don't even know if I know that exact <laughs> number, Shay. And believe me, it is many, many, many organizations. It is many orders of government, everybody from the local, the provincial, the national, the Indigenous organizations nationally, um, you know, with the uh, uh uh, uh, AFN, with the Métis National, with the ITK at the national level, with the local treaties here in Alberta, the Métis Nation of Alberta, the Métis Settlements of Alberta, the local Métis Associations, uh, the City of Edmonton, all of the resources. It is just an incredible amount of people. And honestly, I probably don't even know everybody yeah. because there's work happening that um, that just needs to get done. Yep. And people are making it happen, and I think that's the gift that uh, uh, Alberta, as host, um, is is just making an incredible difference to healing and reconciliation,
1: frankly. Um, and, And it's, relatively speaking, it happened fairly quickly, right? Like, to plan an operation like this, you would typically, like, probably years of lead time didn't have that in this situation. So has it all been pretty compressed? It has been very compressed, and um, but you know I'm a believer
2: that there is nothing like a deadline to focus the mind. So normally, uh, uh, organizing a papal visit would be you know 18 months to two years, and we've had less than four months. Yeah. Uh, so you know I, I think we've got a lot of uh, thinking, planning, um, um, uh, contingencies, and we hope we've got it uh, roughly right. Um, But that is ultimately our goal is that we know there's going to be hiccups along the way, but, uh, you know, this is uh, uh, something that is so historic uh, uh, a visit that everybody, I hope, will have the spirit that says we've just got to get this roughly right versus perfectly wrong. And we just have to have patience with one another as we get through these uh, important few days ahead.
1: That's what I wanted to ask you because I know there are so many people who are anxious to to be involved, to be part of this uh, momentous occasion. There's people traveling from all over Western Canada, Northern Canada to come here. What's the message to, you know, people in the community, not involved in planning, not involved in anything official, that just want to be part of this? Like, you can't just drive out to Muscochise and find a place to park and be part of that, right? I mean, what what are you telling the community, the the, the people of Alberta?
2: We are telling them that... Obviously, these events, the priority uh, uh, people we wish to be in attendance are those elders, survivors, knowledge keepers, young people in leadership in those Indigenous communities, particularly at Muscoachees and Lac Saint Anne, um, but, but we are hoping people will uh, register for the park and rides, uh, register for tickets, uh, just so we have an idea of how many are coming. We really do not wish to be turning anyone away uh, in those uh, special categories. These people have waited a long time uh, and we really want to ensure there's place for them at those Muscoachis and Lac Seinan and we're hoping that that will happen. Um, We, uh, because of the the limited capacity at both of these events, we're really uh, uh, asking that everyone choose a park and ride to get to these events uh, because there will be no parking on site. And um, unlike other major events where there's a special guest, when the Pope arrives, it'll be really hard to get people in. It's not like people can arrive late. Okay. Uh, so it's not like going to church where you can be a few minutes late. This is the Holy Father. We need everybody in place. Uh, uh, and that's just so important. So.
1: What yep, about tickets to, to mass? I know that uh, there was going to be a block on Monday and then the reconsideration was made to try and make sure that it got to to the elders. As you say, that seems to be the focus here, as it should be. Um, has that been dealt with? Because I know there was confusion around how to operate smartphones <coughs> in some cases yeah. and all the rest of that. I mean, again, another wrinkle, as you say, there's going to be yeah. bumps. How's that one going?
2: Um we heard the message loud and clear that uh, the technology is not for everyone, and especially the, the elders and survivors uh, that we wish to be in attendance. So we're grateful for the sons and daughters, nieces and nephews, grandchildren that have helped those who don't have that technology, and the many others in, comu- in the community that have also done the same. But we are, uh, working really hard to get printed tickets, uh, out for those individuals that need them. So we're working on a solution on that because we've heard that message loud and clear. So working closely with Ticketmaster in that regard. But, uh, we chose to wait for the final release of tickets, uh, till Friday just because many people were struggling with the codes and the Ticketmaster and we didn't want they, them to worry. Uh, We wanted to ensure that we were giving them the time and space and just to take any sort of worries we had away from those who thought they weren't going to get a chance to get a ticket. So we also know that there will uh, be a limited number of tickets available for those who simply just couldn't get a ticket through the online system and weren't able to have access to the supports for someone who could get that for them. So we are really trying to say this is for you, our... um, the indigenous people so please we'll find a way to get you to the places you wish to be yep. and uh, we hope that'll happen.
1: Marianne one of the questions so many people have been asking is what's the bill on this and I know that we have the provincial government for about 20 million the feds for 35 million and the diocese looking for 15 to 18 million that they're trying to fundraise is this another example of you like you said you don't probably even know of all the different agencies that are involved. Do we even have a way of putting a a price tag on this? Because it seems there's so much money being spent and so many things going on.
2: You know, I would say you're right. There probably is a lot of money investing in, in this. But in my opinion, and I think the opinion of many, we can't put a price tag on healing and reconciliation, um, I think it's impossible to do so, and I consider this an investment in everyone's healing and reconciliation journey. I think we have to start. We have to have this uh, papal apology here in, in on these lands, and I think that's a commitment many are making. And I think you see that in the, the dollars that you've just mentioned, Shay. So, I really do think you know. Again, it's it's hard to put a price tag on something that's so historic. Required
1: and important for, for everyone. Oh, I agree. I think you're absolutely right. I think the question people would ask is, yeah, but why do we need to, to, to pave the roads and uh, you know, build new infrastructure out at Alberta? I mean, it's been, been fine up until this people visit. Why, why do we need to suddenly be worried about paving roads and closing highways?
2: You know why? Because we have to ensure that the people who journey to these uh, places will be safe. I think neither one of these destinations have or will have had the numbers of people coming to these sites, and to run buses that are getting tens of thousands of people to these sites isn't like a normal pilgrimage where cars drive through them. So the roads and the infrastructure were a public safety issue. Really, we couldn't have the road um, deteriorate. Uh, We had to plan and anticipate these things. And and I think that after the Pope comes to these uh important places, it's gonna be a place where others will continue to come. So that infrastructure is long term and an investment for the future to, to keep people safe so that they can drive there. But particularly for the papal visit uh to Mascoche and Lac the the infrastructure just had to be improved uh for that to happen.
1: Marion, thank you so much for your time giving us some of the answers to the questions. I really appreciate you joining us today.
2: I'm really grateful. And for anybody who wishes to learn more, yep. we're trying to put everything on our papalvisit.ca website. Okay. It's updated frequently, so please, I encourage um, anyone who's listening who wishes to have more information to go to that website.
1: And, Marion, does that also have tips and advice and rules and regulations in terms yes, of where to go and how to get there yes, and all that? it does. Perfect. Yes, Excellent. it does. Good yes. stuff. So okay. Thank you for asking. Okay, yep. take Thanks, care. Marian. Thank you for having me. Mm-hmm. That is Marion Haggerty-France, who is the Alberta Site Coordinator for the Archdiocese of Edmonton, involved in the papal visit. All the details that you need to know. And I think she's right. I think there's a perception out there among some people that, oh, we'll just show up. We'll go to Cheese. No, uh, it's not going to work that way. Go to the website. If, and, and I know there are so many people who want to be part of this next week, and that's fabulous. If you don't do it the right way, I think it could be an extremely frustrating experience. So check out the website, papalvisit.ca, I think she said. Right. Uh, month after month after month, we've been talking about inflation as it steadily ticks up. We've been talking about interest rates as they steadily go up too. And every time we report the numbers around inflation, they're always described as higher than we've seen in 40 years. It hasn't been like this since the 80s. And it's true, it hasn't. Um, so what was going on back then? Are there similarities? Are there differences? Can we draw any parallels? We're going to chat now with James Orlando, a senior economist with TD Bank. Uh, James, thanks for your time. I appreciate you joining us. Happy to be on. Thank you. Okay, so let's sort of put the parameters in place here. We're talking about 70s and into the 80s, right? That's when we saw really high inflation. First of all, how high did inflation get? What kind of numbers were we talking about then?
0: Well, when we compare it to that time period, so there's two time periods of really high inflation, two real peaks that happened, one between 1971 and 76, and another time period from 1977 to 83. In both of those time periods, inflation got above 12% on a year-over-year basis. So compare that to the 8.1% that we got this week. And so we're not there with respect to getting to that 70s and 80s level of inflation, but we're getting close and we're inching up. Um, The question for a lot of people and a lot of people's minds is, are we going to return to those time periods of very high inflation? that really hit Canadians hard back then.
1: Exactly. And before we get into that, let's talk about interest rates too, because we, we're talking a lot about how they've gone up to more than 2% already this year. But still, compared to where they got back in the 80s, this is nothing, right? I mean, they topped
0: 20%. Yeah, no, not even close. So, you know, most uh, when you look at market expectations for the Bank of Canada policy rate by the end of this year, we're looking at like 3.5%, 3.75%, um, so higher than we are right now. But in that first time period of uh, high high inflation, the policy rate by the Bank of Canada got to nine and a half percent, so way more than what we have right now, three times more than what we have right now. Um, whereas in the late 1970s and early 80s, we actually got to 21 percent on the Bank of Canada's uh, policy rate. So Jeez. just uh, you know, we're not even in the same ballpark here.
1: Unbelievable, it really is. Um. Okay, so let's talk about the similarities. I mean, there's so many different factors that go into what contributes to inflation like this. Are there similarities between now and what we saw back in those two inflationary periods in the 70s and 80s?
0: Yeah, so we've been characterizing this as uh, the same song, new tune kind of inflation story, where the drivers of inflation that we have right now, all the stuff that's really leading inflation higher in Canada Uh, were some of the same factors that drove inflation during that high inflation stagflation time period of the 70s and 80s. And what what I point to is the fact that we had a big surge in food prices and a big surge in transportation prices. And when I say transportation, uh, the big one in transportation is uh, gasoline. So, you know, prices at the pump. And so anyone that's either gone to a grocery store, I'm assuming, uh, you know, you and I both have, mm-hmm. and pretty much all of your listeners have, and everyone that's driving by gas stations is seeing the prices changing pretty substantially And those were, in fact, the exact drivers of inflation that we saw during the previous time periods. And so although inflation isn't as high and things aren't as bad as what we had back then, they are the same factors that are moving. And these are very emotional factors for people. Um, Things that we buy often, prices that we see change often, hit us more emotionally, so they stick with us. And so that changes our perception of inflation much more than, say, every time I buy a washing machine you know, every few years.
1: What about differences? There's some key differences, too. I mean, like you say, a lot of similarities, but it's not exactly the same, right?
0: Well, just based on, on the size of, of the move, right? So on the food side, you know, we have inflation pushing, you know, 8 9%, right? Yeah. Um, whereas um, during that time period, both, uh, both time periods, inflation was pushing around 20%. So, you know, the, the move in food inflation wasn't there yet. Um, on the transportation side, gasoline prices have moved tremendously fast. They've moved huge, right, over the last little while. Um, but on the transportation side, in general, um, we're not there yet with respect to the peak that we saw about 20% in 1977 to 83.
1: In terms of the interest rates, where did they start? I mean, we were at historic lows in terms of interest rates. And like you say, we're looking at, okay, let's call it 4% for the sake of a round number. Nowhere near the 21% they peaked out. Where did they start and how did they get that high?
0: Well, so when we look at where where interest rates were before the cycle, you know, we do this thing called uh, the Bank of Canada's Monetary Conditions Index, and so that takes into effect where were interest rates before. Um, adjusted for inflation. And so you know we got pretty low adjusted for inflation in Canada. So we were when we're at the low for like zero policy rate for the Bank of Canada before um, before everything starts happening, you adjust that for inflation, we got like a minus six percent level of, of policy rates. Um, that was about minus seven, minus eight percent. Um, adjusted for inflation, before things really started picking up in the 1970s. But one thing that I would highlight is not just the fact that interest rates were low before things started, but the fact is how fast did the Bank of Canada respond when inflation started picking up? Okay. So what we found was that when you look back to that time period, it, the Bank of Canada was very slow because the Bank of Canada back then didn't do inflation targeting the way they do it now. They follow things like the money supply um, and When that's not working and inflation started to increase, the Bank of Canada was slow. So they they took a a few years to actually raise interest rates. Whereas right now, we're seeing one of the fastest interest rate cycles um, in -hmm. history. The the idea of the Bank of Canada going from, you know, we started the year at 0.25%, we might end the year well above 3%. That move is historically fast. and so the fact that Bank Canada is moving that fast means they're being more aggressive at tackling inflation. They're being, they're being more focused, trying to get ahead of it so we don't get to inflation like we had back then.
1: Okay, I know you've got to run. So last one. Uh, how do you anticipate this ending? We know how it ended uh, earlier when they got to the 21% interest rates, a crushing recession. It did not go well. What are you anticipating this time?
2: Right,
0: not just a recession in, in the 70s and 80s, but the fact that we actually, during the different cycles we had, we actually had three different sessions in Canada, <laughs> like three different episodes of recession. So pretty significant for, um, for what's going on. Um, the one thing we have going on for us right now, as I mentioned, the Bank of Canada is moving very fast, getting ahead, trying to get ahead of this. Um, it means that we actually might be in line for what we call a soft landing. So being able to raise interest rates, yeah. bring down inflation without hitting recession, uh, without having the unemployment rate rise, without having millions of Canadians losing their jobs. And that's important. The fact that Bankingham is moving so fast, it could potentially avoid that scenario. And the other factor is, is that a lot of the drivers of inflation right now as I mentioned food, fuel, these are external things. These are supply driven. They're geopolitical driven. So if we actually start seeing a turn in some of these factors, which, you know, we might be getting evidence of that right now a lot of the Bank of Canada's job will be done for them, and they will be able to not raise rates as much as, you know, you would think when you have 8% inflation. And you might be able to have less of an impact on the overall economy and get that soft landing, get more of a, um, an easier situation for Canadians, such you don't have to inflict so much damage on the economy to get inflation down.
1: Yeah, interesting times. Um, James, thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate your time. Um, healthcare researchers, this is global, talking about the effects of high temperatures on mental health. And not just by putting you in a bad mood, no, more serious, much more serious than that. Um, basically, it's a culmination of 10 different studies from a number of countries all around the world talking about a number of different factors. Um, extreme heat and humidity linked to heightened symptoms in people with depression generalized anxiety disorder, bipolar disorder, a study out of the UK that linked high heat to higher suicide rates, one in Australia that said for every degree increase in the monthly average temperature, mental health related deaths increased by 2.2%. So there's a lot of evidence and a lot of science around the fact that They're very closely linked and they have a dramatic impact on each other. So to find out more about this, we're going to chat with Katie Hayes, who is a senior policy analyst with Health Canada. Katie, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate your time.
3: Thanks for having me. I'm really grateful to be here.
1: Now, I'm sure some of the things that we're talking about, all of the things probably that we're talking about are are really no surprise to you. I mean, you've been part of Made in Canada reports on this very subject, right?
3: That's correct. That's correct. Yeah, we released in February of 2022, we released uh, Canada and a Changing Climate, uh, the National Climate Change and Health Assessment. And for the first time, we had a dedicated chapter on the impacts of climate change to mental health and well-being.
1: And what what are we finding in our country? What kinds of um, reports? Is it the same things that I mentioned earlier with, um, you know, more depression, more suicide, all these sorts of things? What are we finding in Canada?
3: Yeah, well, in particular with extreme heat events, um, you've nailed it, just in terms of the evidence you synthesized, basically seeing increased in depression, um, increased rates of suicide, also um, general anxiety disorder, um, cognitive impairments, and increased in violence and suicide Um, The other important thing to think about when we're talking about extreme heat is that those who are at greater risk are those who are already experiencing poor health outcomes, whether that's physical or mental health outcomes. So that's one of the big things that we also highlight is who's at greater risk. And we know that those who are at greater risk are already experiencing health inequities, including those with pre-existing conditions and are elderly. Um, the chapter also looks at things beyond extreme heat. It looks at wildfires, it looks at flooding events, it looks at hurricanes, which are less prevalent here in Canada, yeah. but they still exist, um, and all of the mental health outcomes that can occur with that, but we also focus on what people can do about it. How do we adapt to a change in climate and protect our well-being?
1: Is there a physiological reason? Have we determined why? I mean, why the two go hand in hand in certain terms of, you know, increased humidity and heat, for example, causing increases in depression. Is there a physiological reason?
3: Um, There's a number of reasons. So it's physiological, and I'm not a physician, so I can't speak to the exact physiology, but there are physiological components, but there are also behavioral and environmental components as well. And some of the behavioral things to consider is that you know, people who have severe mental illness, um, they may not be able to access or may not be as aware of adaptive behaviors like taking more water in, increasing their fluid intake or, you know, protecting oneself um, in the heat or, you know, wearing appropriate clothing during a heat wave, for example. So there are also the behavioral components that we need to consider as well. Um, And as well, the type of care that people are receiving, you know, maybe they are isolated and don't have access to neighbors or friends or, or communities that are looking out for them. So that social component as well is important to keep into context that could you know, exacerbate people's mental ill health outcomes during these heat waves.
1: One of the things I found uh, is the fact that one of the most common, probably the most common form of medication that we take to treat mm-hmm. mental illness and depression, SSRIs, actually, the heat has an impact on how effective they are, right?
3: Exactly. So you've hit the nail on the head and we described this too in in the chapter that I mentioned on mental health and the uh, health and well-being of Canadians is really that medication storage. So the medication that people take for psychosis, for example, um, it can affect people's ability to regulate their body temperature. So to thermal regulate. And also if that medication isn't stored properly, that can have an effect as well on its effectiveness for the person who's dealing with the condition. So, you know, medication storage as a key component and the types of medication that people are taking can interact with the heat as well.
1: Is that like, I know you get all kinds of different um, messages when you get any medication, the whole list of possible side effects and all the rest. Is that included in, in, in what physicians and pharmacists are giving patients who get SSRIs? Are you told, hey, if it gets really hot, you might need to do things differently?
3: Um, That's out of my scope, uh, uh, my wheelhouse. I do believe so, and that it is on there. I know that there has been communication um, in the U.S. and in Canada where they there is communication about the types of conditions that can interact and affect the medication's ability. So, uh, again, outside my wheelhouse of what is actually being done, but agreed that it is something that is part of you know the the list of recommendations about how to properly store and take the medication during um, periods of heat.
1: Yeah, very interesting. Um, So what do we do? I mean, what's, what's the solution here? I, like with so many things around this topic, I guess it's about adaptation, yeah. right? It's, it's sort of what can we do to minimize the impacts?
3: Exactly, exactly. And it's really what are the solutions, right, at, at many different levels. So at the individual level, one of the biggest things that a person can do is know your neighbour and have a social network. And, and that can be challenging for people with mental illness, right? So making sure that there's communities of care, um, particularly during heat waves, checking in on people who you know who may have mental health conditions or who are at greater risk of experiencing this heat exposure and the poor mental health outcomes that occur with it. So checking in on people, making sure that they have access to um, cooling environments and or that they're aware of the impending heat wave or the heat alerts and the type of resources and responses that they can take. And so that's one key important piece. Um, but, of course, for anyone who's experiencing distress or you know, heightened anxiety or mood and behavioral disorders, accessing mental health care, um, one of the key things that has come out of the pandemic that the, the Canadian government has put forward is the Wellness Together platform, which is freely accessible and available 24 hours a day, seven days a week, mental health care online and by, via phone. knowing that you can reach out to to speak to a mental health care professional when you're experiencing these types of outcomes so there are many solutions that need to be um, you know put into the foray um, at the individual level and at the community level and at government levels as well um, to really support people through all of this
1: it's a really interesting subject i appreciate you coming on and explaining it to us a bit katie thanks so much thanks for listening today to hear any of our other interviews you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.